from socialservice.sg, I am Jingyang. With Dr. Tan Shinbin today, we explore her latest journal article centered on Singapore's Ethnic Integration Policy, or EIP, as an ethnic desegregation policy. She shares about ethnic and socioeconomic segregation as they relate to the EIP, their inverse relationship for majority public housing subzones, and future areas for study. We also chat briefly about research data and methodology at the end. Dr. Tan is Assistant Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore. Hi, Shinbin. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really, really excited to have you on. We've spent some time trying to align our schedule, so I'm really excited to, to do this episode with you, especially to dive into your recently published paper. Uh, but maybe first for the audience and for the rest of us, tell us a little bit more about your general research and work at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Thanks, Danielle, for having me. I really appreciate it. So currently, I'm an assistant professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. And uh, my area of interest is mainly at the intersection between uh, the built environment and health. And what I mean is I'm interested in how uh, different ways urban policies, such as land use planning, housing policies, infrastructure policies, and so on, how these policies might affect different populations. Uh, when I say different populations, I, I'm interested in looking at different social economic class. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in looking at racial ethnic delineations as well. And I'm really interested in how uh, policies translate into group level differences. So whether we can use uh, urban policies to reduce uh, group level differences in health and well-being. So whether uh, urban policies can help uh, bring about greater social uh, well-being and health equity amongst our population. And, and no one example of that research, which is why we're so excited to talk to you, was the paper which you just published, which we'll also link in the show notes, right? The paper is titled, Do Ethnic Integration Policies Also Improve Social Economic Integration? A Study of Residential Segregation in Singapore. So before we dive into it, help us understand Singapore's EIP or Ethnic Integration Policy and how you decided that was something that was important to research and study. Okay. So the EIP is quite a, a, I think, comparatively long-standing kind of housing policy that looks at imposing constraints on where uh, people are allowed to buy public housing flats in Singapore in a way to ensure that each neighborhood roughly reflects national ethnic proportions with some uh, allowances for variations. So the whole purpose of this is to prevent the formation of ethnic enclaves because uh, ethnic enclaves are seen as threatening of uh, racial tolerance and harmony. And Singapore has a, a bit of a history of uh, racial tensions and the, uh, the government is very keen to ensure that these incidents don't uh, repeat. So also, again, as a background for people who don't, are not so familiar with Singapore, the EIP is applied on only public housing in Singapore and public housing actually occupies like a, a big part of Singapore's housing stock. So I think at present, almost like 80% of Singapore's residential households live in the HDB flats. So for that reason, like a policy on the EIP has a really, really uh, large impact on, on the population in Singapore. It's, it's very consequential. And this is why one of the reasons why I'm interested in looking at this policy. And also because it, over the years, uh, the, the policy which really imposes uh, restrictions on the buying and selling of, of uh, what is seen as part, like a, an asset or uh, you know, one's property. And this is quite controversial and it has also garnered quite a bit of criticisms. So just briefly, like scholars and commentators have kind of studied the distortionary impact of the, the EIP on uh, housing resale prices and how 
have kind of documented how these uh, disproportionately affect ethnic minority groups uh, when it comes to, to the resale. So I thought it was kind of a, a good opportunity to, to reassess how, how well the EIP has been working over the years and particularly looking at its impact kind of on a more macro scale on the patterns of population residential mixing, which is what the policy was setting out to, to target in the first place. And I mean, taking a step back from Singapore, the EIP is also really interesting when you think about housing policies uh, elsewhere in the world. And there are many other cities, uh, we think about the US particularly, and you know, Australia, Europe, uh, really struggling with problems of residential segregation. And I mean, Singapore is kind of a radical policy experiment here where we put a fairly draconian uh, cap on, on, on the market. This could be an interesting case study for other, other countries. So I thought, again, it was really important to empirically study and document uh, the, the kind of how the EIP has affected our housing landscape since uh, as of today, like the kind of up, updated studies on the EIP are quite thin on the ground. So I think there's scope for more, more such research. Yeah, and on that final point, it is something you reflect and, and write about quite explicitly in the paper, right? So, you know, the EIP, as you wrote in the paper, I quote, is one of the few examples of a consistently and robustly implemented anti-segregation housing policy, end quote, which is something you mentioned just now. You do acknowledge in the paper, and it's something you touched on when you said the intent is to mitigate or prevent ethnic enclaves. You say that the policy has reduced ethnic residential segregation, though its impact on social economic segregation has not yet been studied, right? So therefore, in this study, you try to examine both at the same time, both the ethnic component and the social economic component. So with that in mind, I thought we could take a deeper analysis into your three questions or research questions with some emphasis on the broader implications, right? So let's start with the first one. The first one you wrote, has there been a reduction in national level estimates of both ethnic and socioeconomic segregation since the implementation of the EIP in 1989? So that's end quote. If I paraphrase that, that's trying to understand, has it actually accomplished what the EIP policy set out to do in the first place, both in relation to ethnic segregation and socioeconomic segregation, right? So what did you find about the national estimates of segregation over time since um, 1989? Okay, so just uh, I mean, uh, it's kind of a caveat. It's really difficult to kind of uh, pin. So what I've done is kind of trying to map out the patterns of uh, changes in, in, in segregation over time. I mean, to, to pin it to the EIP to say that that EIP has been put in place, therefore we see these patterns. It's it's a bit difficult to prove because okay. the counterfactual is is almost impossible to study within yeah. uh, such a, a time frame. And also just given to, the limitations of data, yeah, just to flesh that uh, out, the counterfactual will be uh, Singapore where EIP was not a thing. But that's right. That's clearly not something that we could do, right? Yeah. yeah. We can do creative things like which I've done, like just to compare compare uh, areas that are not uh, are not subject to EIP. So like private housing is not subject to EIP. So you can kind of do some of these comparisons, but I would hesitate to say causally that the EIP has led to that, 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 this. I mean, so that's not quite what I'm saying. I mean, I'm going to describe some of the general patterns we see happening yeah. on ground and kind of try to link it back as like with logic and, and reason to the EIP rather than definitively through empirics. So, I mean, having said that caveat, what I've found is uh, using the available data, uh, Singapore's levels of social, economic and ethnic segregation are, are generally low over the years. So let's just like, Put that out there. If you compare yep. it to other cities in Europe and the US, or we're really doing quite, quite, quite okay, I think. So when you look at kind of the trends and changes over time, I find that the overall levels of ethnic segregation has has dropped, uh, like from 1990 onwards. So the policy uh, was implemented in 1989. So if you look at 1999 onwards, the, the trend seems to be going down. I mean, a little bit of fluctuation, but generally going down. 
So this supports the idea that the EIP might have you know, actually been effective in uh, capping ethnic segregation. However, if you kind of look at the, the, kind of the trends of changes in national levels and social economic segregation, we see increases actually between 2000 and 2010. So there seems to be like counter, counter directionality to uh, the levels of ethnic segregation. So, I mean, just taking a step back and looking at this, I mean, this finding suggests that, you no, know, I mean, there isn't a very strong link uh, between social economic segregation and ethnic segregation. You, one doesn't like track the other in the yeah. same direction, although, you know, intuitively we might think that's the case. And this is something you explore in your second question, right? Which is the second question here was do subzones with more ethnic segregation also have more social economic segregation? And you just walked us through how they might not necessarily be correlated or linked to one another. So I guess the question here would be what is the relationship you found in the study between ethnic and social economic segregation? And in particular, could you explain uh, something you mentioned in the paper, which I quote, right? EIPs distortionary effects on housing resale prices generated by imposing arbitrage limits on sale transactions, which is something you also mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today as well. Yes. So when I did the analysis, so the, what I previously discussed was kind of a national level aggregation. So I also broke it down into look at subzones. And in subzone Singapore, they're kind of a smaller-ish, like a town. You can consider a subzone a town or yeah. close to that. And when you look at this kind of town level, segregation levels, I find that the, the, the subzones that have a majority of residential population living in HDB flats, um, so a majority HDB subzones, these have lower levels of socioeconomic segregation and ethnic segregation compared to the subzones with a larger proportion of public housing. So this, again, is intuitive. Yeah. Uh, in public housing, we have the EIP. EIP probably caps uh, socioeconomic uh, and ethnic uh, segregation. So we see a difference between that and the public uh, private housing. However, if we really like just look and focus on the public housing subzones, we, we see like a, a, a negative relationship between the two types of segregation. That means when we look at uh, subzones with a large proportion of public housing, those with higher levels of ethnic mixing, those who are like very mixed ethnically, these actually have um, the inverse, like they have like less social economic mixing and vice versa, which is really interesting and it's all like counterintuitive. But I mean, drawing from the work of other uh, housing scholars, which looked at the way that the EIP distorts housing resale market, you can kind of work out the logic there, a potential explanation. So if we think in terms of the demand and supply of, of flats within estates that have reached either a Chinese like quota or a minority ethnicity quota, you kind of split that too when you think about how that works. So in a HDB estate that has reached a Chinese quota, uh, that means because there's a larger percentage of Chinese residents within such a subzone, that means it is a more ethnically segregated uh, neighborhood. There's less mixing because there's less uh, minority groups within there. In such a state, uh, the majority of Chinese-owned flats can be sold without restriction. So they can be sold to other Chinese people, they can be sold to other minority ethnicity people. So these flats have a unrestricted buyer demand, they have a huge market uh, in comparison to the minority-owned flats who can only sell to another minority. They cannot sell to a Chinese person because they will increase the proportion of Chinese people. So uh, for also that same reason, Chinese buyers who want to buy into that particular estate, they have a restricted supply of eligible flats. They can only buy from other Chinese sellers. They cannot buy from minority people. So if you look at kind of the interplay between unrestricted demand and kind of a restricted supply for Chinese-owned flats, this creates like an upward pressure for the prices of such flats within a Chinese-constrained estate. Then in contrast, if you think about well, the minority-owned flats within the same estate, the demand for these flats are likely to be lower because, you know, for all the restrictions we talk about. And then sellers might then have to lower their sale prices to attract 
uh, other minority households who, who might not otherwise uh, prefer to live in this location. So there's a reason why, possibly a reason, right, like Chinese people flock to an area versus, you know, ethnic minorities. So because of these kind of distortions created by the caps on who can sell and who can buy, this could result in a divergence in the price of minority-owned versus Chinese-owned flats. So you see a wider spread of housing resale prices within a more Chinese estate than an estate without an EIP cap. So if you think about it, that means a Chinese estate, which is more homogenous, would you kind of pick up more social economic diversity because of the spread of housing prices. And just to backtrack a bit, the way that I'm calculating social economic mixing it in, in, in the estate is based on housing resale prices. So you know this is also uh, a result of the way that I'm uh, classifying the population group as well. So if you, if, I mean, I don't want to work through the whole exercise again, but if you take that thought experiment and you apply it to an estate where the ethnic minority quota has been re reached, the kind of policy works to narrow the range of housing resale prices and then results in a greater social economic homogeneity. So you can imagine in an estate with greater ethnic variety, with more minorities would conversely have you know, a, a narrower range and therefore more homogeneous uh, social economic uh, landscape. Which is looking at the, essentially looking at the relationship between ethnic segregation and social economic segregation. And you walked us through that. That was the second kind of focus. The third one would be, you looked at, you also looked at this third question, which is given that only public housing blocks are subject to the EIP, right? Are public housing residents therefore exposed to less ethnic and social economic segregation compared to residents in private housing, right? So what was the relationship or rather, what were some of the um, findings you had contrasting public housing blocks and private housing residents and what should other future studies consider and explore that you've not quite done in this paper that you want to explore down the road also? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you, you mentioned, I, I, I compared kind of public housing to private housing. And across the board, again, we see that public housing residents uh, generally are exposed to lower levels of ethnic and social economic segregation. So if you take a very like simple takeaway, it be like, yeah, okay, the EIP does work, it caps uh, residential segregation uh, regardless of each level. But at the same time, you know, if you kind of look at, if we split the private housing types by different types, so... When I say private housing, it's like it's not a it's not a monolithic block, right? We have different types of public uh, private housing. We have the huge bungalows, and we have you know the small terrace houses. We have uh, the high rise condominiums, and and so on. And actually, I found that the different types of housing that does does matter. So I found that uh, across the board, like most of the typologies of private housing, uh, do are located in areas with higher levels of ethnic and social economic segregation, except for the terrace houses. So we find I found that. The terrace houses are actually less socially economic segregated than even the public housing. So this is kind of like interesting thing to think about. Like maybe there is potential to reduce residential segregation revolt, resulting to like a rather constrictive policy like the EIP. Maybe maybe it's more about like upfront land use planning, which again, like I mean, kudos to our planners, they, they think a lot about that. So maybe it's about paying a bit more attention into that, uh, looking at the way that maybe terrace houses are, are being inserted into different neighborhoods and seeing whether we can replicate that for other public uh, private housing types as well. And then the next question is like, well, what should future studies explore? So this study is like very, very exploratory. It's very like preliminary or even, I mean, I'm really just looking at patterns based on available data and data is not super available at a fine grain. So the kind of uh, an analysis by different private housing types, uh, what I've been describing, the terrace houses versus the, the other types of housing, that's re restricted only to socioeconomic segregation because I only have kind of a very fine grain resolution of data at that point. Uh, I cannot make any proclamations about ethnic segregation at 
as it pertains to the housing type. So, I mean, I would love to be able to do a, a study using more fine-grained distribution of uh, ethnic population data to kind of study that, to, to understand how, uh, you know, at, uh, be, like beyond uh, like a subzone level, like at a building level, kind of an immediate neighborhood, whether ethnic segregation also is distributed along the lines that terrace houses enjoy, like, you know, more diversity. Or actually, maybe terrace houses are, like, you know, hot bits of you know, segregation like, oh, on an ethnic level. Hard to tell. Uh, so ideally, the future studies would do that. And then I mean, there are a whole slew of other things we want to look at because this study, again, really just looks at housing patterns. And the big, big question I still have is, well, I mean, okay, residential segregation, social mixing is like, like residential segregation is like a dirty word and social mixing is like a, like a very positive thing. We kind of assume that this is true. But within the Singapore context, is that actually, does that bear out in, when we look at outcomes? Like, there needs to be more studies to kind of link the, the urban patterns that we are seeing to actual human outcomes. So this has been done in other jurisdictions. If you look at the US, like very well studied, a lot of literature points to hugely negative uh, outcomes within that context in areas with very high, especially social segregation. But is that true for Singapore? I mean, I think it is worth kind of pushing a little to say, well, can we kind of explore ethnic enclaves really problematic for, for racial harmony? Is it really problematic for uh, social opportunity and so on? I mean, so is it very problematic for human health? So I think that's really the next level of studies that we should be looking at to, to justify or to, to amend the policies that we have in place. And clearly to do that, as I, I guess it's a final question you mentioned about data, right? So we can end on this because this will be interesting to a limited subset of us, right? Because we're talking about methodology and this will be of interest. And clearly to do the kind of fine green research that you're alluding to, you need more than just subzone data, right? You want to go into greater detail as well. But maybe to start with here, tell us about the data sources you did use in this study, right? So you used national census data, you used the URA master plan, and you talked about this as well. You use housing resale transactions as a way to measure, correct me if I'm wrong, socioeconomic segregation as well. So what are each of these sources and how were they useful and helpful for this study itself? Okay. So we start with the, the census data. So uh, Singapore collects census data every 10 years. I think they do like a, a general household survey at the five-year mark as well. But I mean, I mainly require, uh, relied on like the 10-year census because it goes quite far back and consistent, consistently. And these data are aggregated spatially. So that means that we, we, we don't have building level, building level uh, information. We have like within this subzone, yeah, 20% Malay, you know, 70% Chinese. So, so they're like kind of broad broad numbers there. And so that's, that's how I, this that's the kind of resolution I had to calculate ethnic segregation. So useful because it is, I guess, reliable because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's the national census, you know, it's representative, you know, that it's, it's, but the challenge there is, it is very coarse. You can't really break it down well into like an, an actual neighborhood level. So when you think about the way we interact with the, the, the built environment, do we really interact with people across our town or do we really interact with people within like a 10-minute walking radius, stuff like that to think about. So national census, uh, I use that. Then for the social economic segregation, traditionally people would also go back to the census to, to look at, well, you know, income distributions of the population within there. But for Singapore, uh, I think we didn't even have subzone level. The available data was even more cost than a subzone level. It was at the planning area level, which is 55, I think 55 planning areas in Singapore, uh, a little hard to say anything at that kind of resolution. So what I did was uh, thinking about uh, what might be a proxy for a socioeconomic class at a very fine grain level. And other people have also done this. I looked at housing resale transactions with kind of a assumption that if you buy a really expensive house, you're likely, your household is likely to be 
of a higher socioeconomic class than someone who buys a one room or two room flat. So using kind of a, and, and that data is very fine grained, very well captured through um, the, like the kind of the uh, real estate data. It's basically real estate data. And you can get, break it down by months, you can break it down by, uh, you know, uh, years going quite far back. And uh, the resolution is at building level. So uh, very, very temporarily, I think fine grain enough and also spatially fine grain as well. So that's why I, I use that as a proxy. And I also try to kind of like, do cross checks back to the census data to make sure that, you know, I mean, is this a realistic uh, proxy? And it seemed like it lined up quite nicely. So that's why I use housing resale and transaction data. And then, you know, some of the land use data uh, to figure out what buildings are, you know, public housing, private housing, you know, the master plan, uh, that was something that I, I also looked at. So, I mean, everything is helpful. But I think research is a bit about like, you know, you look at what data you have and you make the best use of it uh, with your one hand tied behind your back, you know, and you try to be respectful of your data and, and not overstretch and say too much if you can't. So that's that's kind of where I find myself in, in this particular data set. I mean, ideally, ideally we, we, we have, you know, every individual person at every building at every time point. But, you know, what does that mean in terms of like, States to survey. Like, what does it mean if you know you are able to get data that find your resolution? Also, you know, interesting to think about. Like, what does it mean to get fine grade data on the implications of us as a society, right? Yeah, and I think we wind up where we started, which is you telling us about the research and you ending with telling us what you plan to do in the future as well. We'll link the paper in the show notes. Um, it's been really nice. I mean, I've read the paper. It's great to hear you talk about it as well. And I really believe that this is going to be one of many to come. And I'm hoping that folks who are interested in working with you who are working in the same area will get in touch and, and work on these projects for the future as well. So thank you very much, Shinbin, and, and all the best with all your future work as well. Thank you.